0: Welcome to the Better Future podcast series brought to you by Driven by Design Award Programs. I'm Mark Bergen, the founder of Driven by Design, and joining me is... Kirsten Mann. I'm Global VP of Product Experience for Oracle's Construction and Engineering Global Business Unit. This podcast series is a special series where we focus on design in the boardroom. It's a series of in-field recordings and live panels with design giants from around the world, and we discuss how boards are leveraging design to accelerate economic outcomes. In other words, how is design being managed up Down and across the organization. In this episode, Mark and Jay take time to examine how board level decisions are impacting the built space. Jay's work in larger urban uplift projects, as well as infield value capture projects, provides an interesting insight into how New York is evolving.
1: Hello, I'm Jay Valgora, and here we are on my rooftop here. Now, when I first moved here, this neighborhood was desolate. And we were some of the first people to move. And it has now become one of the most popular and successful neighborhoods in New York City, hence the world. And it actually only received a name a few years ago when it was named Nomad, north of Madison Square.
0: Yeah, and I must say, on the weekend, I tried to find Nomad. And I kept on winding up at the hotel.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So the thing that started Nomad, it was an article in the New York Times. And the hotel across the street, which is not the Nomad, it's the Ace, really began it through design. So this neighborhood, of course, had a wonderful history. It was famous for its hotels. 19th century, spectacular restaurants, great hotels, beautiful classical buildings. All of them went down in the Great Depression. It only really came back in the late 2010s and the Ace Hotel moved in. That was a single room occupancy hotel. It was a bedsit hotel, I would say, in using the British term. And only then did they start to take it over and they made it into one of the coolest hotels in New York City and put in fabulous restaurants and stores. They kind of
0: curated the experience, and it actually was the catalyst to change the entire neighborhood. And and that's the interesting thing that we we'll often see a project that comes through and it's it's considered to be when the things changed, but there's normally quite a bit of momentum there. And you know, as you were saying, there were other creative people that were in the neighborhood here, that would have then given some confidence to the team at Ace that it was going to be the right sort of hotel for the right sort of neighborhood and then history comes up and we have to put a a fingerprint down and say that was the project that actually brought everything together
1: well you know i'm interested in what you do recognizing and promoting great design finding it early creating awards speaking to people because i think that design really has a whole arc and by the time everyone recognizes and knows it really a lot of the great work has come before And in its mature phases, wonderful things can happen, but I think part of what you do is find designers, find products, experiences, architecture, designs that are ahead of the curve. And that's what I find so interesting. And this neighborhood is now nearing its mature phase, but really so much of the creative thinking happens in the early phases when people are laying the foundation.
0: Well, well, thank you for acknowledging that because there's 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 a couple of elements that I put into the design or the system that is the Driven by Design Awards. And one was that we would have a capacity to curate projects in as well as having open nominations. Mm. And then that meant that I could go out to the expert panel that I have around the world and say, just tell me what's, what's, what's bubbling up and... Take me to the place when I'm in town so that we can actually see what's coming along or introduce me to the company that's doing some really great digital work or some great communications work because we want to find out the people that will surprise everybody because I've got a huge influence from the music industry. And if you go think the, an artist comes to town, another artist is going to say, come with me and I'll take you And there's this band that hasn't been discovered yet. And then you find out ten years down the track they collaborate together, and the the masterful artist will like a David Bowie in Arcade Fire, that all of a sudden you know the Arcade Fire guys realize that David Bowie's known about them and has appreciated their work, and so there's That's that cool. nice really passing cool. on that goes on, and then you'll have a chat to David Bowie, and he says the thing that keeps me you know fresh is the fact that I get to meet bands like Arcade Fire. And and so that's a great collaboration and mutual respect.
1: Well, that's another thing you do, I think, with Driven by Design. You're cutting across so many categories. So for me, what's really important today in design is that we are influenced by other people. It's funny, I was joking with someone today. It's a terrible thing to say, but hardly any of my friends are architects. And I love architects. I'm an architect myself. So many of my friends are artists, musicians, poets, makers, uh, and to me they're so inspiring to me that it really influences my work and takes us in fresh directions. I completely agree and I think the way you look at your awards and the projects that you sort of curate and you know talk about
0: I think is part of that too. And, and so I mentioned the curation part. The second part which I think has given us a gra- the great success is that we'll turn around and we'll acknowledge the people who commission the work as well as the people who curate it and and there was an insight that I had, which was that there's a courage moment. There's courage. Uh, actually, listeners, this is fantastic because here we are. It's uh, 6.30. And can you believe it? But there's actually people with uh, pneumatic drills, with, you know, uh, uh, saws happening. Only in New York do people work at this time of the day on construction sites. It's a beautiful evening. We're out on the
1: tower of this old 19th century hotel. The sun is raking down the street. You can hear the sounds of traffic below, people working you know, on the different buildings, transforming literally the neighborhood around us
0: while we're sitting here. So, so that second part there about working in the intersection of commissioner and creator, and that then changes the conversation because the moment that you actually acknowledge the commissioners, you, you see an incredible change in the dynamic that happens between the client and, and the commissioner. But it takes a lot of courage to walk in and say to somebody, I think I need, I know I need, but I don't know how to do this. You know, I
1: often talk to, you know, the people with whom I work. One of the most important things I say, and I say this also to my clients, it is impossible for us to do a great project without a great client. It is almost impossible to do something that is outstanding, that's meaningful, that's different, that's provocative, unless we have a great client.
0: And great clients are, are very hard to nurture. They they kind of have to just walk into your life, don't they? You can you can select people and realize they're going to be a better client than somebody else.
1: I think nurturing is the right word because when we get a great client, we fight like hell to keep them. You know, a big part of my practice with Studio V Architecture is really working with clients over and over and developing a relationship where we feel comfortable with each other, even our entire marketing strategy, which is the craziest non-marketing strategy of all, is that we get almost all of our work through word of mouth, through recommendation. We don't have a brochure. We don't have a website. We get all of our work by clients recommending us to
0: other clients. I did notice that when I, you know, I thought, I better just check out what you've been doing. And the website's gone. It's a terrible thing to tell you. Now, my own staff have built three of them.
1: and finally. We've built a brand new one and under duress, I'm going to launch it, but I've designed a highly flexible, changeable website that I can constantly update and tinker with because it's the only kind of website I'll accept. And actually, it's funny you bring it up, but for those of you who want to look at it, it's studiov.com, S-T-U-D-I-O-V.com, and we're launching it this week. Fantastic.
0: After being in business for 13 years. Well, I think I'd seen an old or a previous version. So it's great to go see that there's one that you've had your masterful hand in. So, Jay, I think I'm just going to enjoy relaxing here a bit with you and uh, we'll kind of skip over any other conversation. Look, it's been lovely to have an intro conversation with you. But, listeners, we're going to actually now get down to the business of design and we're going to be talking about how how does the conversation between the architect who's actually trying to complete a project and the commissioner come around and how do you make sure with – projects that you're working on, which might be for a very small board of uh, somebody's private commission, or it may be for a, a, a municipal authority, where I know they've got some work there, developers. There's, there's a very vast range of how do you actually report up on the success and the progress of a project, and also to go deal with those things that actually come down and actually weren't part of the original brief, but now maybe the organisation has changed There's relationships the organisation now has, which is putting different demands on the project. You're having to work out how to implement them and you're having to work out how to have a conversation about those challenges that come in. So why don't we start off with something small? Why don't we go to a project which was actually, the board was uh, coming more from a domestic circumstance and you've got a, somebody who, this is a space they're going to live in and that they're going to, and that they will experience themselves because that has a very different profile than a project where it's actually just purely financial returns. Sure, well, first of all, in some
1: ways the story is the same and in other ways it's different. On a domestic level, when you're dealing with someone's private residence, there is nothing more personal of an expression of a person, their lifestyle, who they are, how they perceive themselves. Really the two most important things in a person's own identity are fashion and their home. And I think that how we approach and work with someone on their own home is one of the most challenging and yet can be one of the most rewarding
0: projects we get to do. So when they come to you and that they say they they want you to do the home, how often do you find that they actually want you to go do a project totally unencumbered versus them saying well we'd also like and we'd also like because that's the that's that change that happens in projects and that's a very delicate conversation because if you've been given a an open open brief and then you begin to find that there's new constraints that are coming in uh, coming in that can actually either choke a project or it can actually be received as a great opportunity to do something which will be even more pleasing Well, with regard to the open brief, I love the concept, and I can say that it's
1: almost impossible. Really, any architectural project or elaborate interiors project almost always must come with a brief. And I guess I imagine someday there will be that project where we can do anything we want. And yet somehow it's difficult to imagine, even though I might fantasize about it. But at the same time, the constraints often prove to be the kernel of the idea, too. You know, the great example is when Michelangelo carved the David, he had to work from a flawed marble, and it still was one of his greatest sculptures because he somehow had to work around the existing constraints that he was given, which were very, very difficult. So for us, we often try to work with someone on a project like a private home where we really want to understand what makes them different. How are they unique? And how can we use that to generate a design? So it's not just Jay Valgora's design me creating one unique thing for them. I want it to grow out of who they are as a person, and that makes
0: it more exciting for me. I remember the early days of the digital industry and I'm meaning really early days. I remember them too. I so, remember doing my thesis project on the very first Macintosh computer in 1984. Okay, so, so I left a, a fantastic career in theater where I was a global expert on how you do stage automation to go make musicals and ballet and opera be repeatable and I saw that there was this thing called multimedia coming around so it hadn't even been called the digital industry by this stage and the most challenging thing for the first five or six years from the late 80s into you know, the mid, mid 90s was the fact that there were no boundaries there were no interaction models that we, that we could lean on we had those briefs, which were open slather, no boundaries, no constraints and you can can you work out how to do it on time to achieve the outcome and still work out how to go make a dollar or two? I had a very understanding former wife who <laughs> and that's not why she's the former wife, but I had a very understanding <laughs> former wife who who could see that we were doing something which was simply transformative and amazing but we weren't making money we weren't satisfied with the outcomes that came the clients were tolerant but I don't think they were really satisfied because there were no boundaries there were no constraints so I think you know if somebody said to me you've got all the time in the world you've got all of the budget in the world and you can do whatever you want you're in hell I completely agree with you So coming back to your analogy of a residential house, like
1: even looking, you know, within my own loft where we are now, we were faced with the constraints of building on top of a historical building, terrible regulatory approvals, had to go through four different levels of government approval on an individually landmarked building, had to work with a co-op board, which is always very challenging. And I had to work with my own wife, who I'm still married to and very happily so, and had to make sure that I would continue in that manner. So all the different constraints of the program, yet still wanting to create something beautiful something extraordinary something different so really it was important to as we do with all clients to treat it like a problem we need to understand the problem and what is unique about it and what are we trying to solve how would we have our children uh, when they go away to college how would the home transform where we created movable walls that would open up the spaces so that we could use it in more flexible ways once they were gone without having to renovate again How would we accommodate each of the things we loved? My wife is a fantastic cook. So I had to create an incredible showcase kitchen, but I created a second kitchen on the roof for grilling, which I love. So each of us could have our own space and enjoy our own activities. How could we create something really unique about the building? So we created a two story library that just becomes a dramatic focal point and kind of reflects the larger idea of vertical living in Manhattan. And finally. How could we create something that would reveal the truth and character of the space itself, where we revealed each of the layers of the building from the 1869 Civil War era wood to the 1929 Depression era uh, factory pieces that were assembled into the classical building to our time, creating something completely contemporary. These are the ways we look at constraints and problems and respond to a particular situation with a client.
0: So there's an example where the stack is reasonably short still there's a stack you know there's there's a person who's doing the creating there's a person who is expecting this brief to go and deliver them particular outcomes in the case of case of your wife there and there's a financial consideration there which uh, you're both involved in that's so urgently important we had a budget still <laughs> yep. so that gives a, an idea of how do you manage up because if you didn't deliver on the project on budget and to satisfaction, it's got consequences. Definitely, yeah, hard to hard to get away from those consequences. But I want I want to go to some other clients that you've got who are some of the biggest property people in this city. I think if I look out, I can go see a couple of the buildings that that come from come from those companies. Tell me about the the methodology that you use in taking a brief from one of those large corporations understanding what what they're after reporting back to them and then helping them to be excited about the about the vision that you've got for the property so that you can actually help to not only meet their needs but but knowing you it's going to be to exceed their needs Every
1: company has a unique culture and I'm fascinated by this. And it's funny when you work with these very large clients, we work with many of the largest developers, entrepreneurs, business people in New York city. These are the people that are transforming New York city, transforming real estate in the world. And they're all surprisingly unique. Each one really has its own personality and character. One thing I can tell you, Mark, is when you're dealing with a project of the scale that we do, You know, the smallest thing we do might cost a few million dollars, and the biggest thing might cost, you know, the Howitz Point development that we've done on the Astoria waterfront is going to come in at $1.2 billion. But each person, you always deal with the CEO, you're always dealing with the leader of the company because they're deeply invested in something like the architecture and the design. On the other hand, and you referred to this earlier, you've got to work with the staff. And the staff are really seeing the project through and you've got to satisfy everyone's concerns so you have to really work towards a vision that's going to address what the ceo is looking for and at the same point there are going to be hundreds of people there's not a project we do that doesn't involve a hundred people whether it's consultants contractors builders structural engineers clients marketing people and so we have to find a way that's going to create we have to create a design and a vision that they can all rally around and they can all understand. And I could give some examples of that.
0: So so you've got this, there's a much bigger stack if we go back to the previous example. There's more complexity in there. The moment you bring more humans into it, you then wind up with a multitude of relationships that you're trying to go, uh, go work with. And there's also, every so often in a project, one of those layers of the stack isn't isn't performing properly. They're they're causing challenges to the project to actually come to completion. Managing that is a very complex scenario because the whole stack is relying on on what's on, on it having harmony and it actually working to a common goal. How do you actually approach the the management of do you try to solve it at, at the individual level, or do you give transparency to people to say we've got some challenges in the project? We're trying to go work out with these people who are further down. Because that's that's interesting. Sometimes it's done as uh, that it's obfuscated and it's done as magic. Other times there's a lot of transparency. How do you make the call when you choose which method? I think there's two answers to that. One is really designed for
1: us because we're interested in unusual, provocative, value-added design. Design creates a narrative that can speak to each person in the stack, from the CEO to the marketing person to the builder. So when we have an idea for a project, and I'll give you a few of them, we communicate it at every level to the team. We never talk down to anyone, even the person who's fabricating it in the field, the marketing department, the staff person managing it, up to the CEO. We communicate the same design vision to all of them, and I'm really surprised, Mark, but that really helps rally people around it because if people really understand the idea, it helps unify them and drive them towards the goal. It helps focus their input. So it's not just um, every single person fighting for their own turf. I think that that's one of the key elements is to create a greater narrative for the design and explain it to the whole team throughout the whole process.
0: I said, when I'm, when I'm having these conversations, I seem to move somewhere between the music industry and the sporting industry. It's very hard to get your team to win if the person who's bringing out the towels and the refreshments isn't on the same vision and same journey as the, as the team that's actually on the field playing. So that's, it. that's interesting that you're using that same, same method, which is we're all in this together. We're all creating success.
1: And then I would go to the second part. So the first part is creating that narrative or vision. But the second part is you need fantastic people. So as I've worked to build my firm and to hire more and more talented people, one of the most important things for me is communicating the vision so they can carry it on and they can communicate it at every level and they become ambassadors for the firm and the design. And so you do need, it's not about one person. It's not about the one Starchitect. It's about having great teams of people that understand
0: the larger vision and communicate it at every level and we work together. So. We've, we've spoken about the projects where you've got everybody on board in general, and then I'm interested to know when it comes time to go and look at some of those changes that come in. Mm. How do you create the, the, that narrative and the reporting through so that the board can understand the value that's going to be unlocked and therefore decide to approve a change in, in a project that needs to change?
1: Well, a lot of our design process is oriented around not just revealing a design and hoping everyone will buy into it, not just trying to sell a design or a drawing. We always go through a process. As a matter of fact, it's really important for us. So we create research, illustrations, examples, diagrams, drawings that tell that bigger story. Even the way I told the story of this loft, for example so i'm doing a project in hong kong right now for this incredible client and we've gone back and described the history of the area and the whole site and their complex and what they're doing in order to lead to our solution which is to create an incredible lifestyle club for them that's unique in all of the world and what really helps when we go back where there are questions from individual people within the stack from people higher up or lower down is when we show the overall story and the process, it allows them all to understand it and it helps guide the input that they give. Because one of the great dangers, and I think you're leading up to this, is if different members of the team are giving contradictory input, then you're in trouble. And the more we can create a greater story and a narrative and work with them to develop that narrative, that it allows us to respond to their needs
0: and keep the project on track. And and that's exactly it because You need to make sure that you've got some consistency but being able to go back and say here's the research, this is the reason why. In another one of the interviews that we did, somebody gave the example of we don't just choose pink and I I think that's a really interesting uh, consideration which is the research shows that it should be pink, not we chose pink. And, And I think if you consider the way that financial results are presented to a board, Nobody actually asked the, the, the chief financial officer, well, I actually think there's a different number. But sometimes <laughs> the way that we actually think about design projects, so well, do you really think it should be that pink or do you think it should be a hotter pink or maybe it should be a red? or And, and, and so if you've got the research to back it up then that inquiry can take place, but it's actually on a substantive basis, not a individual choice basis.
1: Now, I'm not gonna make it so easy. I'm gonna give you both parts of the argument too, and we talked about this a little bit. It touches on the broader discussion we're having, that I think that design comes from many places. There's no one single font of design, but I think some of it comes from the idea. You know, I say that 30% comes from the idea. 30% comes from knowledge and experience and that, you know, a real understanding and an exploration. 30% of it, I believe, comes from an interaction with a unique client, that they're part of the solution and we're creating something around them that comes to life for them. And that last 10% comes from sheer luck or terror, where you're really just on the edge of something and you're just going with your gut and you're just going with something that you believe. That is the final part of it. So when I come back again to this question of research, I think that's all part of it. It's part of communicating a larger narrative and vision. And I think there's still that slight element of human chance and luck and terror that is actually essential to great design.
0: One of the things that... One of, no, 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 I, I, love, I love that answer because one of the things that we enjoy celebrating in the awards is that when the jury actually given me feedback on particular projects, you get those moments where people say... This one's actually, this needs to be recognized because the journey that the project went through is simply phenomenal. And it's that human endeavor that's out there, which is, it was a major journey for the client, it was a major journey for the practice, but it's been a journey which we need to go recognize because if we don't do that, people don't realize that that courageous position should be taken. I think how you interact with clients is
1: so critical, the way you're talking about it. I think empathy is incredibly important where you really come to understand a client and their needs, and they come to understand you. And if we do our best as designers, a key part of our practice, this is a strange thing to tell you, Mark, is that we bring our clients along with us where they kind of feel that they grew or learned something. And I'll tell you on every successful project I've ever done, my clients have taught me something too, and we both know it. This is one of the key elements, and I think it's part of the reason for the success of Studio V is really working with our clients where we feel we've accomplished something together, and we've both brought each other to a place that is further than we were before, and we both recognize it.
0: I've got quite a few musician friends who have had varying degrees of uh, chart success. Nothing messes their head up more than getting chart success on a project which was just uh, 10 minutes in the studio or, you know, not 10 minutes, but a very short period in the studio that they really didn't have to work hard on. But it had popular success and the things that they crafted and sweated over don't have success. It absolutely destroys their head because something that has meaning to them doesn't have meaning to others. And so I think that idea that the client is learning on the, on the journey through the project creates, because ev- they're invested in financially, they're invested in the time in their career, they're in- and if they're invested in the learning that they get out of the experience of the project, it's been worthwhile. But if, if it's just purely commerce and they haven't learned, it's not fulfilling. I completely agree. So I want to go to a project that you shared with me last year, a very exciting project where you, you were telling me about a Brooklyn project, which is capturing some, basically rail infrastructure, covering it over and creating this huge corridor in, a, in part of Brooklyn, which most people would have considered wasn't going to be developed and wasn't going to have a, another life. So
1: this is a fantastic project and we feel really lucky to be a part of it. Um, I can't tell you the exact location, but it is in South Brooklyn, and there's a rail cut. And the project is actually about to go public because we're working with community groups and local government officials in the neighborhood. And this project is fantastic where there is a cut right through the middle of the neighborhood, kind of a moat. And we really specialize in edges, gaps, the interstices of cities, the leftover pieces. And this is a chance to knit back together a community that has been cut apart by this rail cut that goes right through the middle of a dense residential area and we're going to be covering that over and creating new affordable housing as well as
0: market rate housing, green spaces, open spaces and knitting the community back together. And that's really interesting because all the way through the history of planning for the public realm, we know that there's the wrong side of the tracks. Exactly. We, we, we know what <laughs> roads and we know what, what rail infrastructure does. In dividing communities so the idea that there's this rail cut which is going to be an opportunity to create a new community with market rate and also affordable housing in it is a really interesting take on solving what has been you know 150 years a dilemma of we need these things to move trains around which then moves commerce and people but we haven't solved how to go and actually stitch communities together. So, so I was really interested in that project because it it brings that public realm benefit that's there. But, but I suppose what interests me even more is that you've got people who have had the foresight that they want to go do that. When you've gone and investigated the project, did you unlock value that they hadn't seen in the project? Mm-hmm. You know, because I I would imagine it's a it's a relatively novel concept to be doing. And therefore, you're going to be finding some leverage that may not have been immediately identified. This is a great question. So first of all, this goes right to the core of of
1: kind of the theme of this discussion, which is how do we work with clients? How do they influence projects? How do they make them better? Or how do they challenge projects? This is an example where I have a brilliant client, someone who oftentimes sees the value in things that others don't. So he began by posing the problem, which he lives in this neighborhood. He knows it desperately needs housing. There are tremendous numbers of families, large families, young people, and that they don't have sufficient housing. And he was walking around and realized that this not only was a gap that was cutting off the neighborhood, but it was even cutting it off from expanding into the surrounding areas. It was kind of walling off the community. So he had that first vision. But then to answer your question, we brought new ideas into play where we would figure out how to realize that, how to create something that was in scale with the community, how to create open spaces. And even to your point earlier, we worked with construction people, financial analysts, to figure out how he could do it so that it would be cost-effective, affordable, and technically possible. And in the case of a rail overbuild, you could imagine that's a formidable challenge where we had to solve all the issues
0: about how to build over the track and how to make it affordable to build it so the project could be real. And one of the things that we most people don't understand about rail is that there are a lot of things that are moved by rail that aren't allowed to be moved in other ways, particularly toxic or explosive substances. And so I'd imagine you would have had to have dealt with, you're now closing off what might be an explosive you know, event, uh, an accident, and how does uh, the fumes get out? How does the smoke get out? So there's a lot of engineering challenges there. So a big
1: part of what we do, Mark, is we bring together the right teams. And it's funny, like, of course, we're creating architecture master plans, but also we're really advising clients on how to make developments feasible and practical. So we assembled the entire team on behalf of this client. So, for example, we brought in Arup, the brilliant, uh, you know, engineering, multidisciplinary engineering firm based in the UK. They have offices all over the world. Arup has done a tremendous amount of rail overbuild. So we assembled the right team. We created fluid dynamic smoke analysis to show how smoke and toxic fumes would be evacuated in the event of a disaster. The criteria is incredibly rigorous. They assume somehow that two trains passing under the building at exactly the same time will both simultaneously explode. And that is the criteria that you have to solve for. So the challenges are amazing, but we did this and we figured out ways to do that that would be cost-effective and would allow us to continue to build over the railroad tracks. If you look here in New York City, Grand Central Station was originally built as a huge rail overbuild that made Midtown Manhattan. Hudson Yards just opened last month. Huge rail overbuild project that is redefining the west side of Manhattan. Our little project in South Brooklyn is the next stage where you could do it at a smaller scale and knit together smaller neighborhoods, create more transit-oriented development, more housing, more affordable housing. And I think that's the whole next step.
0: Yeah, and I I go look at the um, Hudson Yard project, it's electrified rail that's going through there and it's passenger rail, it's not freight. So the degree of difficulty is actually relatively low. The scale is mass, but the degree of difficulty is low because that venting need that you've put in there um, doesn't exist in that project. So I'd imagine you, you've gone through and, and at some stage in this project, there would have been a conversation which was, we're going to do a few things that weren't exactly what we started with, but here's actually where the upside is. And that, that creates an interesting moment to go and actually report that through to either the client directly or the board that's uh, overseeing the project because you have to go tell them that you're still interested in the original brief that you're a partisan, you're, you're still committed to that, but there's a opportunity that you'd like them to give you permission to go and actually drive forward on the extended understanding. I can give you a perfect
1: example of this. When we started the project, in order to make it financially viable, we were sure we would have to go for higher density. So the surrounding neighborhood that we're talking about, and it's in the Sunset Park, Borough Park area, is generally low scale. It tends to be four, three, four story buildings, six story buildings. And when we began, we felt the only way to make it financially viable was to do 15-story buildings, 18-story buildings to fight our way out through density, like Hudson Yards or other projects. Those are even larger, of course, those are much taller, but that density would be the solution. After we really studied it, worked closely with our engineers, we also worked with AECOM Tishman on the construction estimating. What we discovered was that a low-rise solution would be more structurally effective and make more money that the return on a low-rise solution was actually better than a high-rise. And so we came back and developed four-story walk-up buildings as well as six-story apartments, which fit perfectly into the scale of the neighborhood. And in fact, it was more financially viable and easier to solve the structural platform. So this is part of the beauty where we came back to the client and said, we have a different solution with lower density, fewer apartments, but you'll actually make more money And it'll be a more beautiful
0: project that fits in with the scale of the neighborhood. How you tell that story is going to be very interesting. Because for some people, they had visions of they were going to make a monument. For other people, they were actually working on that they were going to make some money. Well, and this is the issue with architects. And I love
1: architects. But sometimes we can be too focused on just things that our clients aren't concerned about, like just the aesthetics. Mark, I care deeply about the aesthetics. I want to create outrageous, fantastic, beautiful projects. But I come to it from the point of view that I'll be given permission to do that if I can solve their problems, if I can show the developer how he can make more money, if I can work with a structural engineer to figure out the better structural solution, if I could work with the community to create something that is recognizable and fits in with the scale of their community. If I can do those things, then I get permission to do the the best aesthetic treatments possible. And so this I consider to be our process
0: and our method, how we work with clients, and a big part of our success. It's a very brave thing to go back to somebody and say, I'm gonna do less, but you're gonna make more. It is, and so in order to do that, you can't
1: just do it in a casual way. We had to back it up with all the facts, all the information. And this is part of the reason why we built these long-term client relationships, where there's a level of trust, where we really understand that we're looking out for their interests. And at the same point, I can say as an architect, I think I'm creating something even better for the public. Always we try to reconcile those two. I can't build it unless the client is going to make money, but I firmly believe that we can create something that'll be more beautiful and more relevant and meaningful to the public. I'll give you another example of that same project. As part of it, there was a, the rail cut itself was full of trees and yet it's completely inaccessible and this is a neighborhood that desperately needs more open space so as part of the low-rise solution we came up with the idea of creating kind of a residential muse or a green walkway that would link all the houses together the community loved it the city loved it and it allowed me to create something more meaningful for the people there so as part of this more cost-effective solution we then created something that was also more meaningful and more beautiful for the community, creating a green series of gardens and walkways that links the whole project together. That was the payoff for me.
0: Jay, it's been, it's been incredible to be able to wander through a range of topics here with you. You've been able to go show the insight that you've had regarding small scale projects and demanding clients and making sure that the fit's there in your own personal space. We've also been able to go walk through a project which is yet to be announced, which is such a privilege to have the fact that you've gone and actually done that. Very soon, you're going to hear about it soon. Many people wouldn't have actually even considered having that conversation. So I appreciate that you've done that. And I hope for our listeners that they're able to go understand there's different dynamics that come in and maybe going back to the client the commissioner and saying, I've got a different way of thinking about this. If it's done with an appropriate presentation, it's done with you know good research, it's presented well, that that courageous presentation may be actually what makes everybody smile a little bit more rather than feeling that you're actually going to be telling them something they don't want to hear.
1: And I think it also helps when we work with people like you. We work with organizations that are promoting great design. We work with people that recognize things early and can see like Driven by Design. You know, where is the future going to be? How are we going to create the new neighborhoods like the neighborhood in which I live? How can we get ahead of that game and tell that story to everyone? That's a privilege for me. And I think that really helps us present
0: projects to new clients and that hopefully will change our cities for the better. Jay, thank you so much for your time. As I say, it's a humble privilege to go get time and to hear your thoughts about this topic. Mark, it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you.